So I'd invite you now to grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to be looking in verses 19 through 25. So I would invite you to stand together as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's Word for us this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are privileged to gather together as those who have been called by Your name, whose sins have been paid for by the finished work of Jesus. We come together this morning from a world that's uh, marked by brokenness, by unrest, some places on the doorstep of war as we we think of the the unrest and the uncertainty of things happening over uh, near Ukraine and and just so many ways that we can look out into this world and just see uh, just just a lack of, of peace and a lack of rest. And we know as, as we look into your word that we will only find rest, we will only find peace as we first and foremost find it with you. And you have stepped and moved towards us through the person of Jesus to reunite us into a relationship with you so that we can know you, so that we can love you, so that we can worship you. And we long for the day in which true peace will be found in this world, where wars will be no more, where fighting jealousy, injustice will be done away with. And so we, we, we come together, we gather as your people in hope of that day. We ask that you would do a work even now to shape and transform us to be more like our Savior. So I pray that you'd open up our eyes as we look into this passage, let it challenge us, let it shape us, and ultimately let it draw us closer to you. So we thank you for it, we thank you for your word that has that, that not left us alone, but we have a guide even amidst a confusing world. So we thank you, and we love you, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. You guys have a seat. Let me just ask, how many of you have enjoyed watching any of the Olympics over the last couple of weeks? Right? Got a few? Yep. Yeah, I've, I've caught a little bit here and there with the family in the evenings, and uh, yeah, it's just been awesome to be able to, to, to see these amazing athletes compete together. Like just the, the things that they are able to do with their bodies is just incredible. Like just amazing feats of athleticism. Except for maybe the curlers, right? I don't, I don't know how much athleticism that takes. But, but I'm a golfer, so I, I can't really be saying too much. But, uh, but especially like some of the skiing that they're doing anymore. You know, back in the day, I, I used to pride myself. I was a decent skier and, 
you know, and I, I'd, I'd get out there and, and tear up the powder and, you know, hit a, hit a jump here and there back in the day before my prefrontal cortex was fully formed. And I kind of have breaks on those kind of things now, but uh, I, I enjoyed getting out there and, and, and just, you know, hitting jumps and, and, and doing all that stuff. But, uh, but watching what some of these men and women do nowadays is just mind-blowing. However many flips and spins and twists and everything else that they do is just, is just incredible. Like, how is that possible? You know, my wife uh, read me a meme a couple weeks ago that said something like, you know, before each of these, like, Olympic, you know, events, we sh- they, sh- they should throw out just kind of like an average Joe just to, like, give it a try, just so we all have kind of a baseline of how difficult this is, right? Because like, these, these guys just do these amazing flips and twists and then land as if it's no big deal. Just make it look seemingly so easy, right? It's, it's nuts. And it's like, how do they do that? How do they get like, like <laughs> what it takes the guts up to, to, to hit that jump and fly that far knowing that they're going to land? And the, the one word that it just comes to mind to, 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 to say like they just have to have is, is complete and utter confidence. Like a certainty that they can pull this off. Like they have just amazing confidence in their abilities and their training and everything they've done. They've done this over and over. They started small and it just grew and grew. And they just have absolute certainty that they can hit this jump, spin around four or five times, grab their ski, and then put it down. No big deal. It's amazing. What confidence that they have to be able to do that. And in our passage today, we are told that we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, should have a certain confidence. We should live with a certain confidence because of what Christ has done that should shape the way that we live together. That's what we're going to look at today in this passage. It's how the confidence that we have been given shapes us and what it calls us to as God's people. And so we're going to work through this passage just in kind of two different sections. First, we're going to look at what he establishes as two grounding realities. There are two grounding realities in the first couple of verses here. And then he, he turns and he gives us three crucial responses. Three responses that, that should flow from this. So let's dive in here. This section starts with this familiar word. This word that we often highlight as kind of a, a key uh, word that we should look for when we study our Bibles, right? Therefore. It kind of functions as a flashing light for us. Kind of highlighting a significant conclusion that is about to be drawn for us. And so, so, right, he spent an extended section from chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, and even going back further, where, where he's been, in, in many ways, almost repeating the same themes over and over for us, and unpacking them. But he's given this detailed explanation and this defense of Jesus as the true high priest, as the one who enacts a new and a better covenant, and the one who, who has offered himself as the true and complete sacrifice for us. And so we've kind of slogged through all this deep Old Testament language and we've looked at the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And we've seen all this language and all this imagery and how it's been pointing us to the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus and His death for us. And so by now we should, we should get these things, right? We've looked at these things over and over in many ways repeated them. And so here in verses 19 to 20, the author reminds us of two things that we possess in light of everything that He's shared with us. And it's in these things that He grounds and He he roots and supports 
His call that He's going to give us in the next few verses. So what are these two things that we possess? First of all, as I mentioned in the introduction, we have confidence. He says, brothers, since we have confidence, what is confidence? It's that, it's that just deep-rooted belief that you can do something. And what is it that we're confident that we can do? He says it's we have confidence to enter into the holy places. You may think, well, that's, that's great, but I don't, I don't see a temple around here. I don't see a tabernacle. So, so what does this mean? Aaron did a great job highlighting and unpacking these images and how we've been shown that, that all of these images and all of these, these symbols and these practices, they were shadows. They were, they were pointing to heavenly realities. And so the holy place, as we recognize it, as it shows up throughout the Old Testament, is that place that represented the very presence of God that the Israelites were, were restricted from going into. And so, what he's saying in this text is he's saying that we have confidence to come into God's presence. To approach God. And why do we have this confidence? He, he gives us the answer. He says it's because of the blood of Jesus. Because of His sacrifice for us. It's described also as this new and living way. A different way from the old, old system that required the death of, of, of animals just over and over again. But this new way is enacted by death, but also by His resurrected life for us. It's a new and a living way that has been opened for us. He uses the language again describing that, that this business, he, has been, he has opened this way through the curtain. Again, Aaron highlighted this, that this was this, this barrier, this curtain that, that, that stood in the tabernacle and later in the temple that marked off the holiest place of God's holy presence. And that curtain functioned like a big sign saying, keep out, you cannot come in here. This is a restricted area. And so it's amazing when in Mark's Gospel we read that at the moment of Christ's death on the cross, that curtain was torn and it gives us very specific detail that it was torn from the top to the bottom. Meaning this was not something that, that any human could have done, but this was a very act of God in which God opened up the way for us to come and enter into His presence. So He's saying because of the death of Jesus and His resurrection, we have confidence that we can enter into the very presence of God. We know for, sure, for certain that we can do this. There are different kinds of confidence. There's, there's kind of the confidence that, say, the, the Bengals took into the Super Bowl last week. They thought they were going to win, right? And they, I'm sure they believed that they could. But it wasn't good enough that they just believed it. So it's not just that we, we come and, and we just can boldly approach God, but we, we, our confidence is rooted in, in, in a fixed reality that's been accomplished for us. God openly invites us, so our confidence is certain and it is sure. So the second thing that we're told that we possess, not only do we possess this confidence, but we also have a great priest. By now, the priestly work of Jesus has been discussed over and over again, right? He's kind of, you know, just beating this drum over and over again. We looked in chapter 7 where we saw that Jesus is not a priest like the Levites who had to continue to kind of be replaced because they kept dying. They had to offer sacrifices over and over again. But Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so He stands as an eternal priest for us, always there representing and interceding for us 
before God. It says that He is now the priest over the house of God. The new covenant community, the church. You see, we don't have a temple that we all have to go to because we are the very temple of God. The place in which His, His Spirit dwells within us. God's presence dwells in us, in His people. We are the temple. And so these two things, in many ways, are just a summary. These are the conclusions of everything that's been unpacked for us up to this point. And he says, because of these realities, because we have confidence to approach God, and because we have a great priest, the writer then is going to call us to three responses. You see, the reality is if if we believe these things, then it actually means something for us. Walking through all this Old Testament imagery and language is not just an exercise in kind of biblical trivia or just mere theological discourse, but these are, these are realities that should shape us, that call us to be and live in a certain way. And so he says, since you have these things, brothers, I want to I call you to something. And he gives these three crucial responses for us. So we want to look at them. In verse 22, he says this. He says, in light of this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first call is, let us draw near. Well, what are we drawing near to? What are we we approaching? What are we coming near to? Well, this isn't a new theme here. He said this almost in the same way all the way back in chapter 4 when he said, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive the mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In chapter 7, verse 25, he said that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So here, when he calls us to draw near, he's calling for us to come before the presence of God. This is such a massive shift for God's people under the new covenant. Because even though the sacrificial system had a way of kind of providing temporary, you know, means of atonement, it provided kind of a temporary cleansing, what it couldn't do is provide relational access to God. But now we are told that the way has been made wide open for us to come and experience a relationship with God. So the encouragement of this passage is that since we have this amazing privilege that's been given to us, then take full advantage of it. Come regularly into God's presence and experience a deep and abiding relationship with Him. And He encourages us in how we can approach Him. He says, how you draw near is with a true heart. A sincerity where you're not just coming to God just to get something for yourself, but you're coming to to know Him and recognizing who He is and what He's done. We come also with a full assurance of faith, with absolute certainty that we will not be rejected. That same approach that a child has with their father or their mother, where they know when they come and ask, they're going to be received. They're going to be listened to. And then we come with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This Old Testament language and imagery and these practices that speak to the spiritual realities of the cleansing of our hearts. 
So that we come knowing that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for and they're covered. He basically is describing those who are changed by the Gospel. Those who have, who have placed their faith in Jesus and His finished work. These are the realities that we possess. A true heart. Full assurance of faith. And clean hearts. So if we believe that Jesus' sacrifice actually accomplished everything that the book of Hebrews has been telling us, if He truly is better than all of these things, then the call is, let us consistently run to Him. Live in His presence. Pursue Him. Seek His face. Let us know Him. We have access granted, so why don't we take advantage of it? You know, we all know that the kind of the, the worst experience about going to the airport is, is getting through security, right? Especially, I've heard horror stories lately of just, you know, things backed up all the way back to baggage claim or whatever. And so you show up and you get to, you're trying to get to your flight and you've got to wait through security. It's like the worst thing. And I've noticed, and I've I always thought it would be great to do, when you, when, you, when you walk up to that line, there's that little kind of VIP station, like the clear check or whatever. I don't know if anybody's gotten on board with that, but I'm always like, that's, that's really smart. That would be awesome. I think you've got to go and get a background check or something, probably pay money to do it. But once you go through that process and have that, that card and that access, you can get there and you can just kind of jump to the front of the line and get through and get to your, get to your flight. No stress. So if you had gone through the, the, everything that it took to get that, get that card and get uh, approval to go through the clear check, it'd be absolutely ridiculous for you to, to show up and just be like, you know what, nah. I think I'll just stand here behind these thousand other people. Enjoy it. I enjoy just kind of meandering through this maze for about 45 minutes. It'd be ridiculous. And it's just that, that same thing. We have access to the God of the universe to call out to Him, to know Him, to live in His presence, and yet sometimes just settle for hanging out in the back of the line. We may ask the question then, well, when should we do this? When should we pursue this closeness with God? And he doesn't specify, but the implication is, is naturally that since the way is always open to us, since Jesus always stands there providing us access to God, then we should always be pursuing a closeness of relationship with Him. This is not a once-a-week practice, but it's the regular pursuit of the Christian life. This is why Jesus came as Peter tells us in his letter, that Christ suffered for sins so that He might bring us to God. God's purpose in redemption was not just to kind of forgive us and send us on our way, but it was to unite us back into a relationship with our Creator. He did it so that we could know God, so that we could love Him, so that we could worship Him and be changed by Him. And as I thought this week about the, the, the way that, that we kind of pursue this closeness with God, of, of how we, we practice drawing near to God, I, I think that there's two tendencies that we sometimes drift towards in regards to pursuing nearness with God. And the first is this, I think, and I, I've seen this in, in, in so many people's lives over the years and even, even felt it in my own life. And the first thing is that we tend towards pursuing closeness with God only when things are not going well. Right? Like, like when we have it all together, when we're killing it in our career, when the family seems to be doing great, you know, everybody's healthy and, and, and we're rolling along, things, things are awesome. 
we may start to think, well, you know what? I can kind of do this on my own. I don't, I don't necessarily need, you know, God in my life, getting up in my business. I can handle this. And we may drift and start kind of living life apart on our own. But then when things fall apart, when the marriage is on the rocks, when things with the kids are a mess, when we lose the job, when we get the phone call of the unexpected medical diagnosis, then where do we turn? Then we've got to find some, somebody to help, and maybe then we'll come back to God and say, now I need you. Now I need you to, to, to step into my life and, and help me fix this, help me through this. And, and we, we, we are so thankful for God's grace that He still receives us back in that time. But, but, but what if we were always living in His presence, living and drawing close to Him? Not just when we need His help, when things are, are a mess. What if when things are going well, we're, we're, we're pursuing a closeness with God that, that causes us to recognize that everything that we have is merely just a blessing and a gift of His grace? And what if we're living so close to God that when things fall apart, when the trial comes, we're in the very place that we need to be to already receive and find help? We're called to draw near not just in a moment crisis, but every day, every moment. And the second way that I, I think that we are oftentimes tempted to maybe drift or pull away from God and a closeness with Him is when we sin. As much as we say that we believe that we are saved by faith alone, I think we often struggle with also believing that we stay in God's favor and close to Him by our moral perfections or how we live. And when we fail over and over again in an area of our life, when we struggle, we may be so overcome with guilt and shame that we drift further away from God and we run from Him. We start to feel like we have to go and clean ourselves up before we can come back to Him. Do you ever battle that in your own life? But the reality is, that when we sin is when we need to draw near and not run away in guilt. We have to recognize that we've already been cleansed. Our sins have already been paid for past, present, and future. And it's actually by drawing near to God that we grow and we're in a place that we can actually learn to overcome sin in our lives. We will never overcome sin by wallowing in our shame over our sin. I heard a pastor share this, this story one time, and it's always stuck with me. He shared the story of, of a, a counseling session he had with, with a young man. And he, and he shared this interchange that he had with him. He was talking with this young man who had gotten stuck in a pattern of, of ongoing sin, specifically in the area of pornography. And this man came, came to this pastor one time and, and confessed his sin and, and shared his struggle with him. And this is what the pastor said to him. He said, he said this, he said, let me ask you, when you continue to go back into this sinful pattern, what happens to you? And the man replied, well, I'm full of guilt. I'm full of shame. I hate myself for it. The pastor said, well, do you believe that the cross was sufficient? That Christ died once for all, one time. He doesn't need to die over and over for you. Do you believe that? And the man said, well, well yeah, of course I do. So the pastor asked him again, he said, well, 
Let me ask you, at the point of your sin, how long does it take you to get to the foot of the cross and worship Jesus for the fact that He died for that sin? And the man said, well, it takes me two, three, four days sometimes. The pastor said, so for two or three days, when you're away from the cross, who's getting all the worship, all the dependency, all the focus? The man said, it's me. The pastor said, so do you understand that the very thing that led you into the sin of pornography, you're now trusting to lead you to grace? In other words, you're actually thinking that trusting in yourself is going to get you free from sin. But that's the very thing that got you into sin in the first place. So what do you do? And the man said, well, I beat myself up. I feel bad about it for days. The pastor said, so you believe that you have to hang on a cross for what you've done. You believe that you have to pay for it because the cross was not sufficient enough for you. Then he posed him this question, which has always stuck with me. He said, why not, at the point at which you looked at this stuff, you get on your knees right then and there, and you say, thank you, God. You forgave me for what I just did. Jesus, you died for this. And he pressed him further and he said, why don't you do that before you look at this stuff? Like, the stuff I'm about to do, Jesus, I praise you for forgiving me for what I'm about to do. You died for this and I'm so thankful. And the man said, if I did that, then I wouldn't sin. And the pastor said, that's the whole point. Because the reality is that, that, that the grace of God given to us the invitation to dwell in God's presence teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. When we see how amazing and scandalous the work of Christ is, His sacrifice for us, then we don't want to sin anymore. We don't want to live in that way. We want to cling to the cross. We want to live in God's presence to know Him, to love Him, and to worship Him you see, the closer we are in drawing near to God, the further we will be from the opportunity to sin. And it's only in drawing near to God that we will find the power and the help to overcome sin in our lives. You see, when we, when we run away from God when we sin, we're actually just living out condemnation. But when we experience true conviction of the Holy Spirit, it will actually cause us to run to God. And so, since we have confidence to come to God, since we have a great priest, let us draw near. Let us come to His presence daily, together as His people seek His face and live close to Him. Moving on in verse 23, he says this, he says also, let us hold fast to your confession of your hope. He says, hold fast to the confession of our hope. He's telling us not to give up, but to stick with it. He says again, this is the refrain that we've heard over and over again, kind of a, a warning of sorts, that if you've gone all in with Jesus, be assured that He will not let you down. See it through. One of the things that I still don't understand is uh, the, kind, of, kind of watching, hearing about 
all that's happened over the last 10 to 15 years in the world of cryptocurrency, right? Like, I still have no idea how that all works. But the reality is there was a lot of people who got into cryptocurrency back when it was first started. They bought into Bitcoin when it was a dollar or two. And now there are a lot of people who are actually millionaires because they stuck with it. Because they saw it through its ups and downs and the volatility and not knowing which way it was going to go, but they stuck with it. And they've seen it pay off. And there's probably equally just as many people who are kicking themselves who feel like fools because they jumped ship. They sold, they sold it off early and got out because they weren't sure whether it was going to work. Will you hold fast to your confession of Jesus and see it through? Maybe it doesn't seem great right now. Maybe the, the, the season of life that you're in doesn't, wasn't what you expected it wasn't what you thought it would, would be following Jesus. Maybe you've watched others that you knew and you thought to be faithful Christians, maybe those you looked up to, who have turned and jumped ship, who have deconverted and, and walked away from the faith, and maybe you're questioning whether you should follow them. The call of this whole book for us has been to remember that Jesus is better, He's sufficient, don't let go, hold on. And so again, we need to hear this, this call to hold fast to our confession. Jesus offers far greater currency than any, than any cryptocurrency out there. He offers us greater uh, promise than any investment because His payment has already hit the bank. It's already sure. It's already accomplished for us. And the writer here reminds us that we can remain confident in our hope because of the One who made the promise. Because He is trustworthy. And our faithfulness to Christ is first rooted in God's faithfulness to us. So again, we hear the call hold to our confession. And the last call of this passage here in verse uh, 24 is this. Where he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're called to consider others. Specifically, how to, how to, how to draw good works and, and acts of love from them. The word he used here can also in some, some places be translated as to provoke. Provoke people to good works. It's a word that we oftentimes use in a negative sense. So how do you provoke someone to, say, anger? I mean, we know how to do that, right? Many of us have experienced that in our own lives. We're, we are pretty good at, at, at provoking negative actions from each other and being provoked in negative ways. But here, he's calling for the reversal. And so, just as negative actions towards others will bring out hostility and anger, so we can only draw out love and good works from each other as we first display those same love and good deeds towards them. And here in this text, he connects one tangible way in which this is going to be lived out. He says, if you want to stir each other up, if you want to provoke and, and, and encourage one another to this way of living, life of love and to good works, then he says one thing you need to do is this. He says, not neglecting gathering together. Don't forsake meeting and coming together. Now, I'm sure all of us have probably heard this verse used at times to appeal to to Christians that they need to be at church every time the doors are open. 
right? And, and what he's not doing is setting forth some kind of legalistic requirement for us. Right? He, he's not calling for some kind of church attendance quota that all of us need to meet. But the question remains, should we in some sense kind of use this verse to highlight the value and the importance and even the necessity of the regular gathering of the church and our commitment to that? And I would say that I believe this verse is calling for, for no less than that. But honestly, I think that we miss the point. We completely miss it if all that we take from this verse is that we need to make it a priority to show up at church every Sunday. I believe this, this passage is calling us to more than that. It's calling us to realize and believe and own that the gathering of the church is not just a service that you are invited to attend but it is a community in which you are invited to participate. And look closely at what he says. He says, don't neglect to meet together, as some of them apparently were doing. So apparently, the value of the church and, and, and coming together has been a problem ever since the beginning of the church. So some of them had already started maybe abandoning, saying, okay, maybe I'm in with Jesus, but I don't know if I need this group of people to, to, to live with, so... They had, they had forsaken coming together regularly. So he says, don't neglect that. But look what he doesn't say. He doesn't then say that the answer to their neglect is just simply to show up together. But rather, the alternative to neglecting meeting together is stated as encouraging one another. He's highlighting the purpose for which they get together. The, the gathering doesn't terminate on itself, but the purpose of coming together is so that they can encourage and live out their faith together to actively participate in this act of communal encouragement. So yes, we gather to worship corporately, to sing songs, to hear the Word preached, but in all of that, there is also this opportunity to be served and cared for by each other. We need to see each other following Jesus. We need to see each other declaring truth together, holding fast to Jesus together. This is why occasionally we'll even put up on the screen and together read a, a catechism or an old statement from a confession. And as awkward as that can be sometimes, and we don't get the cadence right, and it's, it's kind of weird, what we're doing in, the, in that moment together is, 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 is corporately confessing these truths that will hold us together. And I need to see you kind of seeking to mumble through that and, 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 and declare those things because in that and seeing you hold fast to Jesus, it, it builds me up and calls me to hold fast to Jesus. So when we come together regularly, consistently, in all of the gathered ways that the church meets, we have to recognize that God is doing something in us to build us up and encourage one another through each other's lives. And let's be honest, the last two years of this pandemic has certainly chipped away at the foundational commitment of the gathered church. I don't say that just here. Every pastor I've talked with, every, every, every friend of mine who's in ministry will share the same thing. There's a, there's a marked Loosening in, 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 a, in a, a kind of an optional view of, of the church coming together. And we've drifted maybe to see it a, a little bit more as, as an optional thing. Because after all, we can, 
We can just uh, catch it, you know, the live stream or, you know, we'll catch the, the video later or listen to the podcast on our, our drive to work. And all those things are great things and I'm glad that we have those resources when we are scattered. But they can't be a replacement for what God does and how He meets His people in a unique way when we gather together face-to-face in per- person. That there's a movement of the Spirit of God together when we come to sit under His Word, to hear each other sing, to engage in conversation, to hear how your week went, to hear the struggle that you've been going through, to pray with one another. There's a unique movement of God that He does in the gathered church. And that's what this passage is calling us to, not just to to merely show up and put our our butt in a seat. Isn't that Seat Geeks? You know, a little commercial or whatever. I don't know why that just popped in my mind. but, But... we're not called just to merely come and, and, and warm a seat, leave here and go on our way as if we, we did some you know, great act of worship. We're invited together to share life with one another. So let me ask you, when you think about coming to church, when you think about going to life group or, or, or getting together with others in, in this body, do you ever consider the possibility that if you just stay home, then someone here might miss the opportunity to be encouraged by you. That maybe your presence here, that maybe your specific and unique gifting by the Spirit is needed to care for someone else in this body. And do you consider that your decision to gather together should not be based solely on your own felt need for encouragement or to be fed. But maybe God has a plan and a purpose to use you today and next week to actually care for and encourage others in their faith. This is the beautiful way that God has made His church to operate. And we we totally understand this when, when we do a potluck dinner, right? Like uh, we did this a couple weeks ago at our family, our family meal, right? Everybody brings something, we throw it on a table, and everybody gets fed. The thing is, you may not actually get fed by what you bring. You actually get fed by maybe what somebody else brings, what they contributed. And the beautiful thing is that when we do that, and there's people who show up, and they, they just didn't have time to make anything, and they, they just had a busy week, and they, they didn't have anything to offer We actually have plenty for them to eat too. And they can be fed. And our response when we read a passage like this can often be, boy, I wish wish someone would come alongside of me and encourage me. And not to diminish or undermine or, or devalue the deep hurt that some of you might be feeling even right now where you come and you don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything to give. But the call of this passage is not For all of us to sit around waiting for others to live this out and encourage us. But the call of this passage is for us to take the initiative and reach out in love to others. So what can you do for others today and this week that you wish others would do for you? Maybe it is a simple text. A phone call. Just checking in to see how how their week is going. Maybe you've received that text in the past and it was so meaningful to you in the moment. How can you do that for others? To just let them know that you're praying for them. 
Can you invite and gather a group from your life group just to get together and, and study the Word together so you can encourage each other in, in, in how to live in the workplace as a Christian? I love the, the word that he uses here of, of consider, meaning think carefully. This isn't easy. We recognize that. This is, this is hard work at times. But what we're called to takes intentionality. It takes planning to think of how we can display love to others that will elicit and draw a response of love and goodness in return. And it first starts with us taking our eyes off of just ourselves and looking out with intentionality to others to care for their needs before our own. And I will say as I share all of this, the one thing that I believe this church does really well is the care for each other. Believe the community that God has created here in this church is phenomenal. It's amazing. We're not perfect. We, we fail in some ways. We fail to think and consider and, and be there in certain moments. But, but there are so many stories of God's working in our lives through each other that has resulted in a community characterized by love and good works. I wish I could just share all different stories of, what's, of, of, of how this has played out here. But uh, I think in God's timing, He actually worked this out where I, I actually want us to hear from someone who's going to share with us this morning of the work of God in her life. I'm going to invite Angela Fiedler up here. Angela originally was scheduled to come and share kind of her testimony at our family meeting a few weeks back. But uh, in God's timing, they got sick and couldn't do it. And so uh, uh, I thought, what better time than when as we, as we look at a passage like this that calls us to be the church together to encourage one another for Angela to be able to share with us her story. So I'm going to invite her up now. Okay, I'm Angela Fiedler, for those that don't know me. Um, my husband Brock and I have gratefully called The Crossing our church home since we moved to Fort Collins from Wyoming nearly nine years ago. We have three active children you've no doubt seen running around. And today I get to share with you guys how God has cared for me through this church while I lost my mom to brain cancer. She passed away June of 2021. Um, let's see, do we have a picture? Um, okay, so my mom is on the left. This was um, May of 2019. Um, we were out celebrating Claire's third birthday. And um, between the time, oh, well, let me just tell you about my mom. She was a super involved grandma, and she would drive down from Laramie, Wyoming, every other Wednesday to give me the day off. Um, she'd always been healthy, active, busy with various ministries, teaching piano nearly full-time. Um, between the time that this picture was taken, over the next two to three weeks, my mom suddenly started experiencing vision changes and a headache that would not let up. We eventually got her to Poudre Valley Hospital where they discovered a grade four glioblastoma brain tumor that had already multiplied into a second tumor. My world flipped. This woman who I viewed as invincible and who I still depended on in a lot of ways now had terminal brain cancer. Um, this church showed up for my family in crisis. Immediately, our life group got the word out and people stepped up to watch my kids so that I could stay by mom's side over the coming days and weeks as she underwent surgery and rehab. Andy and Brittany Lindbergh, they delivered the, well, and Andy 
and Brittany were going through a similar trial caring for Andy's dad. They um, knew kind of what we were going through and they delivered the biggest care package you could possibly imagine filled with goodies and gift cards and games and treats to keep my kids occupied because they knew how hard it was to be at appointments with kids. My older sister, who is not a believer, was moved to tears by this care package. We felt so seen and known and cared for in crisis. After mom's brain surgery, um, her prognosis was bleak, and we moved into a season of savoring every minute with her while also helping her get the best possible treatments. She um, went through six weeks of radiation here in Fort Collins, and it was a pretty neat time where my parents got to be a part of the Crossing Church, um, and you guys prayed for my mom in service, and it was just cool how God cared for my parents during that time. Um, the Crossing was going through the same chapter and book of the Bible as my parents' church in Laramie over those six weeks. It was just cool how God helped them feel adopted by this church body during that time. Abby Chen, who had... Abby Chen, who had lost her dad to cancer two years prior... She opened her life to me and met with me every other week for the next year or two, just counseling me through the range of emotions. Um, our life group, they would bear burdens with us and show long-suffering towards us over the next two years. I specifically remember Jess and Rich Gardner at life group. I would give these updates on my mom and Every week, every week I would look up and they would both have tears in their eyes. They never grew hardened to what we were going through or stopped caring so deeply. Um, even still, Jess, she checks on me regularly, dropping off soup or groceries when I'm having a hard day. Um, in 2020, the COVID shutdown actually allowed Brock and I to move temporarily to Laramie to spend the summer with my parents. We thought we were going up there for spring break, but we ended up staying for five months while Brock worked from home. Um, we were in the middle of selling our condo and house hunting for our growing family. And it was a really special time with my mom while she was still feeling well and able to garden, play tennis with the grandkids. During that time, the Chens, the gardeners, the Smiths, Sarah Piazza, they all came up to visit us and spend time with my parents. They came to remind me that we still had a church home that cared deeply while we were going through a unique season of transition. When we did close on our house and moved back to Fort Collins, um, six trucks pulled up to our new house to help us move and unload furniture. It was friends from Life Group, some of whom we hadn't seen in five months. Our new neighbors walked over to ask, how many people are moving in here? <laughs> He, were, he was on the HOA board. He said, you know this is a single-family residence. <laughs> and we got to explain, this is our life group. This is what we do for each other. You can go to the next picture if you've got it. Um, this is from my baby shower that was thrown for me, again, by women that I hadn't seen in five months but wanted to celebrate my baby boy. And... Um, 
The shower was beautiful. They just went above and beyond. And my mom got to be there and meet all of these wonderful women who had been praying so fervently for her. Soon after Ethan was born in October 2020, my mom started losing mobility, and by Christmas, she was wheelchair-bound. My journey group, which was Anne, Lynn, and Morgan, and Abby Chen, they didn't know they were signing up to be my grief support group, but that's exactly what I needed. They were with me the night that Dad called to tell me, this was after months of seeing my mom decline, and just praying for the best and trying to get her the best treatments. But um, my dad called to tell me that there were no more treatments and that it was time to pray for a beautiful departure. These women wept with me in Panera. (laughs) I was so glad I wasn't alone that night. The Smiths, who knew my mom was on hospice and had days left, they also remembered my oldest birthday They showed up at my house to pray with me and cry with me and help me set up balloons and hand out popsicles to celebrate Valerie's seventh birthday, even though my heart wasn't really there. Um, I left the next day for Laramie and was honored and thankful to be with Mom while Jesus took her home to heaven. My mom may have lost the battle to brain cancer, but I know that she is actually victorious. She is alive and well with her Savior in heaven. And she did have a beautiful departure, as difficult as it was. Um, This picture is the friends that made it up for mom's service. And I know so many others of you were with us in spirit because I really did feel your prayers carrying us through those weeks, those first early weeks without her. Um, And this picture was months after my mom passed. Um, It was on her birthday, Albert Chen. He um, had a speaking gig at the University of Wyoming where my dad works. And he knew it was my mom's birthday. And he took my dad out to lunch and asked to go to the gravesite with him. These are just a handful of examples of the extravagant love and support my family has received from you, the Crossing Church. By opening your lives to me, I have felt the nearness of Christ in suffering. Because of your prayers and counsel, I have felt God carry me through my worst fears by showing up with care packages, meals, child care, baby showers, and moving trucks. You have tangibly shown me God's love in times of rejoicing and times of sorrow. Psalm 34, 17 through 19 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Thank you for opening your lives to bear one another's burdens, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and weeping with those who weep. I may be grieving for a long time, but I know I am not alone. And there is hope beyond this life.
Thank you so much, Angela. I didn't realize it was going to be so hard to get back up here after that. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been amazing even just for us to see the hope that you guys have had walking through that season. And even in your struggle, where you can attest to the other to, to so many's care for you, in so many ways you have also lived in such a way to build up the faith of so many. And that's the beautiful way that God's church works, and the way that He works through His people. At the end of this passage in verse 25, He says that we're called to do this. To live in this way that we, that we call each other to love and to good works, we're to do this all the more as we see the day drawing near. The day referred to here at the end of verse 25 I believe is that end time, second return of Christ. And so, in light of that promise and that coming day, we press in now. We live with this unceasing hope. And we remember that there is a day coming in which all wrongs will be made right. Or as J.R. Tolkien once said, all things sad will become untrue. So it's going to take renewed effort from us as a people. It's going to take thoughtfulness and planning. But let us remember that we were never meant or called to live isolated lives, but we were called to live in gospel community together, to be a community of light to a lost world. You all know this. This is essentially love, live, and legacy just in different language. So let's not forget this, who we are, what Christ has done for us, and the privileges that have been won for us. Since we have confidence to come before our God, to enter into His presence, since we have a great priest who always stands interceding for us, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering he who promised is faithful to us. And let us consider every day how we can stir up, provoke, and encourage each other to love and good deeds as we wait for the return and the coming of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for the testimony of Your daughter here this morning, for the way that You have given us to each other as imperfect as we are in the times in which we even fail each other, yet there is a beautiful reality that you have given us to each other to care for one another, to hold us fast to our confession of Jesus, that he is better, and he is better than anything we could ever imagine or everything we could ever want or desire. So I pray that this week we would live in light of what we have been, been given. Let us come to you daily because access has been granted to us. Let us live as those who know that our sins are covered, that we don't have to go this week and atone for anything because you have already paid for it once and for all. Give us strength to draw near to you and to hold fast this week. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.